cold on christmas here like it was uh like nine degrees so that was fun but none of the pipes froze at least not in my house or in any of my family members house it wasn't like two februarys ago because we didn't have any precipitation we had a little bit of snow flurries but we didn't have a bunch of ice storm come along and also knock out all the power stations but a bunch of power stations did go down because the natural gas lines froze that were servicing those stations so at some points i think it was like 90 to 200,000 people were without power but it wasn't as bad as you know last february because it only was a couple of days it wasn't like 10 days <laughs> yeah um did you like prepare your pipes this time yeah like, yeah wrapped them and everything <clears throat> yeah um the only thing i've got in this new place is i got some pipes on the outside of the house that are connected to the um tankless hot water heater and so you get these little electrical heater cables that wind around those pipes and when the temperature be- goes below a certain uh, level then those little wires kick on and then they keep the exterior of those pipes warm during mm-hmm. the time so that's all i had to really worry about no no nothing nothing big and scary the uh the tom thumb down the street did have all of its sprinkler systems explode though so that was pretty fun for <laughs> people who are trying to do last minute grocery shopping for christmas <laughs> ice skating in there <laughs> Oh, the inside? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I don't know why I was thinking they had a lawn. (laughs) No, no. No, yeah, they're, uh, I guess they had lost power for a little bit, and then everything froze, and then when, uh, you know, stuff started to thaw back out, it all burst when they turned the heater back on. Who owns Tom Thumb? Um, I think the parent company is called Simon David. At least the last that I used to know about this stuff back like 15, 20 years ago. There, okay. There's like a, there used to be a really fancy grocery store like Whole Foods before Whole Foods called Simon David. And they were like the parent company of that. Tom Thumb was like their every man's supermarket, you know. But Tom Thumb is like expensive or it yeah, used to be. I feel like Kroger caught up kind of. Compared to like when I was a kid, you know, it was the jewel osco skaggs alpha beta wars that was the grocery chain wars that were going on and that became albertson's oh okay but we had like like, as in my childhood we went from having a skaggs to having skaggs alpha beta then the store changed to jewel then the store changed to jewel osco and this all happened over like four years the main supermarket just kept changing names and branding over and Man, over again. That's crazy. It's it's weird out here because we, 
are surrounded by like I think within fairly close driving distance have an Albertsons, Vaughn's, Ralph's, and I think a Kroger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like which which Kroger and Ralph's are the same and then Vaughn's and Albertsons are the same. Yeah, yeah. But I guess and they're they all trying existed. to be the, they're all trying to be all the same. Yeah, I know. They're all I mean, <laughs> except what, our What if we just had one supermarket in the in the whole country? <laughs> Honestly, I would be fine with that, but that goes into my politics. That is the right. Well, no, <laughs> you know, then, then, we, then, it, if it if it led to the fact that, like, oh man, the only way to deal with this monopoly is to like now it's got to be run by the government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's the way it's going. Well, no, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> yeah, I have not in 2023 decided monopolies are good. No, but but the free market has decided. <laughs> Yes, right. The free market has decided that it's best if we consolidate a a marketplace. Well, you know, I I mean, honestly, there's in Japan, there's a type of, there's a brand of food that they sell food the way that I would be fine buying it. That it's just like a white package with the word on it in black Mm -hmm. print. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, Um, because I don't need, give me two different types of tortilla chips you know like let's have two of each thing maybe <laughs> just sli- have, i only need slight variation <laughs> the, you can have the way more corn flavor one and then you can have kind of the white corn <laughs> you know well see I, i'm a sucker for the blue corn you give me the blue corn i'll eat those all, all day right. on festive occasions we'll have blue corn tortilla chips for you <laughs> i don't know it's for something something about them they always come off as a little bit crispier and uh not as uh not as sort of buttery salty tasting so it it goes it really brings out the salsa or whatever you're dipping them in better than you know like a standard tostitos white corn type of chip would oh no yeah well you got to stay away from the tostitos anyways oh yeah well i mean here if you're gonna have to go with like the yellow corn chip you go uh with like julio's because it's got like the the hot chili powder mixed in with the mm, salt on mm-hmm. the, on the chip mm-hmm. yeah yeah i don't think julio's is out here but there's we have like there's one i think called santitas and stuff yeah yeah we have that i always too. get the ones that have the price printed on the bag yeah and like I, uh like arizona iced tea yeah you feel like you're getting a deal you're except like, you're not when you go cave to the man except when you go into 7-eleven the price is on the arizona iced tea but then they've also stamped like another price on it that's a dollar fifty <laughs> more <laughs> than what that's already pre-printed on the can <laughs> is arizona iced tea like a good company are they uh like like a a good as an ethical conscious company i have no yeah idea. they've I been around wonder. since i was a little kid i, know. So I have no idea yeah, that was my go-to whenever I was sick in college. Get one of those. Uh-oh. Returned with Octo. <laughs> oh, my God. You should get another one. <laughs> <laughs> Just have one. You know, you need one that's more like the enforcer on the other two. That's like telling them, hey, shut the fuck up. You think getting a younger dog would be able to, <laughs> or maybe that's when both the both these dogs would be like, you know what, we've got to mature, we've got to be the caretaker for this new youngling that's come in. We can't be just you know raising hell all the time. Yeah, we've got to show a good example. Yeah, 
Yeah, possibly. <laughs> because that's what happens with humans, right? Everyone says like, man, I totally changed when I became a father. When I saw that head crown of my out of my wife's vagina, like everything changed that moment. I decided I'm going to become the most responsible human being I've ever been. I'm going to quit drinking, quit doing drugs, quit hanging out with my friends. That's it. I'm on straight and narrow now. That's what happens to every human and it all it always works out. Yeah. Um well, I guess I'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I don't have kids cuz I don't want to have that I don't have to have that realization. <laughs> That's excellent reasoning. Um so I real quick also, I I feel like I went through a time warp and I need your help working through this a little bit. Okay. So I uh, in preparation for the summer I started listening to a podcast about pop punk. Okay. Um, and I think I need to stop listening to it because they're now ruining every Blink-182 song for me. <laughs> uh, but they were talking about Helena by My Chemical Romance. Right. And um, they brought up the interesting fact, had no idea that the woman in the music video is Wade Phillips's daughter. There was a time when I knew that. I, you texted us that, and that reminded me that I think I previously had known that, and I think I know a, if you take me back 15 years, I could probably tell you a few other fun facts about Wade Phillips's daughter that I do not remember anymore, but I think she was in <laughs> yeah, some well, other I mean, things, too. Yeah, if she's like already in that music video, she's And it was like while Wade something. was coaching for the Cowboys, and it was okay, always so like is... a little bit of a under undercurrent of Wade Phillips's daughter type of thing. Yeah, well, that's kind of the avenue I want to go down because then they they started playing like, you know, live versions of them playing this song and stuff. And uh, then they played it on Jimmy Kimmel Live. And I was like, um, okay, that's interesting. I don't remember Jimmy Kimmel Live being around. Like, I thought he started, I swear, within the last five years. No, he's been up, around longer than both the other guys now. I know. He's the longest tenured, yeah. He started in 2003? Yeah, it's my so, entire marriage. <laughs> and then, so when was the man show? Because that's, I swear, that was that's like, 90s. I know it was on Spike, but whenever I saw it, but. Like the, uh, there's two incarnations of the man show too. Like the there's the original incarnation of it that had, uh, you know, Adam Carolla and. Uh, everybody on it and Joe Rogan would come on and oh yeah I remember Dave Attell and a bunch of those people um uh and then there was a second uh, a reboot of it that I think was for Comedy Central or maybe maybe Comedy Central was the original and the second was Spike I don't remember how it worked out but then that one it didn't have Adam Carolla it was just Jimmy or the other way I don't remember it wasn't both of them the second time around yeah, that's, I mean, I, I was like losing my mind because, um, you know, everything now feels like it's the early 2000s again, <laughs> but <laughs> to like hear that he's been doing that talk show, that late night show since 2003, I was like losing my mind. That's so long. I, that's crazy. 20 years? Jimmy yeah, he, Kimmel. He, and it was a big deal too because they were like, huh. You're going to bring this guy to try to take down Leno and Letterman? And then they're gone. They're dead, yeah. I think. I don't know what happened. 
One, one died in a fire denim. last week, right? <laughs> I guess, yeah. A, a I don't know. He, he, he got burned up in a denim factory. <laughs> oh, man. Well, yeah, I, I that was insane to me. I don't know if everybody else has stuff like that happen to them, but I was so confused. <laughs> My Stuff like that for me is more uh, like remembering when... Uh, Peter Jennings died or when Todd Koppel was the news anchor for uh, NBC and stuff like that, like early 90s type of early 90s, mid 90s. When did this thing, which was before or after, like sometimes, uh, you know, I'll get confused on like when certain bands happened to like try and like I'll place uh, I'll place Blur's resurgence in the 90s. I'll think that happened in like 1993 when it was actually 96 or 97. Okay. But that's that's not too far off. Yeah, it's not too that's far like, off, but that but in that time of my life it is a huge difference of like uh being okay. being 12 years old and and being 17 years old, you know. It's that's a huge difference of like what my relative awareness of pop culture was. Yeah, yeah. I guess I mean my my memory is so bad. Like that's why I was surprised because around the age of 13 is when I can kind of start putting memories together in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, it is just a mash of like, <laughs> just like seven memories. Yeah. <laughs> it's just this big ball of fear and anxiety. I have no idea why. For, <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden I start remembering things when I was got to high school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, I don't know. Um, for some reason, I don't remember listening. I swear my only, I had three CDs in middle school that were, um, well, no, four, because I eventually got Jimmy Eat World. But I had uh, Linkin Park, Hybrid Theory. I had a, a P.O.D. And then I had, um, I think Puddle of Mud was the other. Okay. The third one. Um, and yeah, so this, that was. This is a rocking like 2000 to 2001 mix of CDs. You, it's all like, <laughs> man, the world's going great. 9-11's never going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I was in were... when I was in New York. My puddle of mud story is I was in New York in August of of two thousand one, and uh, we were in a hotel that was right above the TRL studios. And Nikki and I were just walking around because I was trying to find. It. I was going to go buy cigarettes. That was back when I smoked. It was a cool time. Um, <laughs> and uh, we were walking down the street in front of our hotel, and this. Didn't know if I was I was blind at that point, but I, this might be a blind thing. I like shoulder checked two guys that were walking by, and uh, like one guy was in a a backwards baseball cap, and the other guy was in a beanie, and it was Fred Durst and the dude from Puddle of Mud because Fred Durst <laughs> was bringing him up to TRL to debut the the Puddle of Mud song because. Uh, <clears throat> Limp Biscuit was the discovery band who discovered Puddle of Mud and boosted them and put them on the scene. <laughs> I for, I cannot for the life of me remember what a Puddle of Mud song even is. <laughs> yeah, they're they're all terrible, but the best the best Puddle <laughs> of Mud thing that they ever did was uh, a few years ago when they did an acoustic cover of About a Girl by Nirvana and uh, boy that dude cannot even come close to hitting any of the notes. He's just. <laughs> He's just sounding like he's going through uh, horrible gastric pain. 
while he's sitting there <laughs> trying to sing a Nirvana song that's supposed to sound like a Beatles song, but he's just butchering it. It's the best thing on the internet if you haven't seen it. Speaking of, so I haven't been wanting to blow up the, the group chat because everybody seems busy in the new year and I don't want to be the only one texting myself. Um, <laughs> but I also saw a video of, uh, oh, what's his, what's his, uh, something Draymond, the disturbed guy. Yeah. Dave Draymond. Dave Draymond. Have you seen him explain their logo before? No. Oh boy. He's, <laughs> it's something that is like a, a middle schooler would be like, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> But he keeps that voice the whole time. He's, I don't know if you've ever seen interviews with him, yes. but he is very pretentious. Yeah, he's he, in, in, in my band friends, that Dave Draymond is a running gag. Just anything disturbed is a running gag. Covering disturbed songs to make each other laugh. All of it. It's, uh, they have a song, maybe it's called The Leaves of the Devil or Devil's Lettuce or something. It's like their weed song. And, you know, like beforehand, it starts with like someone ripping a bong. <laughs> it's so it's the worst weed song ever written. You got to are they got to check that one out. Are they pro weed or anti weed? I, I mean, from the song, you'd think they're pro weed. But also from the song, you think it might have been the first time they'd ever smoked weed before. <laughs> Man, yeah, it's sort of like when sort of like the Beach Boys, uh, you know, Brian Wilson never surfed. Never drove a car, yeah. never dated any girls, but it was like, you know what? Maybe people will like these songs. So it's the uh, they did their their version of the Beach Boys by writing a weed song. You know what? I now Dave Draymond sounds like Andrew Tate. Like that is they do the same kind of voice. He's like I swear in an interview, Draymond is like, because I use a big vocabulary, everyone thinks that I'm pretentious. But that is not what comes across with the linguistic stylings of having an intelligence. Yeah, like, <laughs> need to calm down. I but. use big words like, ooh, wah, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look that up in your dictionary. Rah! <laughs> <laughs> need a medical dictionary for that one. Um, okay, so um, that's my rock talk. That ends uh, the Blinks podcast i swear it's 155 pod if anybody else wants to ruin their high school middle school experience but learning that adam's song is really just like a tongue-in-cheek uh reference to a mr show sketch really hurt <laughs> <laughs> you're like i thought they wrote this about my life yeah <laughs> the stuff i was going through yeah no it was um like the it was never plugged in at all line is just because I think like Mark or Tom, one of them like plugged in their amp one time or plugged into their amp, like their uh, guitar, and then noticed that they had placed it in a puddle of water. And so it would have electrocuted them if they oh, had yeah. it plugged in. Like, it's not about trying to kill yourself. It's about being like, oh, God, I almost died. I, I, I lucked crazy. out, didn't kill myself. <laughs> yeah. And hearing them in their interview after like that person did, uh, die by suicide in their car playing that song and they're like well you know it's not what the point of the song was about it was a hopeful song <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah well it's it's all it's there's a lot of that stuff with music too where i think kids don't get it they or they don't yeah, get yeah. it's 
it's not even that hard to get if you if you just focus on the lyrics some but uh kids just hear like the one or two things that resonate with their emotional uh heartstrings and then that's everything to them or you know they totally miss the meaning like uh when ever, ever it was a big uproar you know during the uh end of the George Bush presidency it might have been right at the beginning of the Clinton presidency but it became like the social topic of the time when um, two two guys raped a girl in their high school while they were uh, playing the song Polly by Nirvana in the background, which is a song about, you know, uh, a girl who gets kidnapped and is getting raped. But the, the point of the song is to... Kurt's whole point was always that, like, I'm calling out all the this toxic masculine culture that everyone thinks this is okay the way that everybody treats women like all of his stuff was just giving the middle finger to all the jocks that he knew in high school that called him a fag every day type of thing Mm -hmm. and uh and so he had to explain that in i don't know there's no social media so he had to explain that in like 50 interviews (laughs) every single interview every single news station every single magazine article and everything and it that even became like a bigger deal at the point because he just didn't want to talk about it anymore being like you guys really think i wrote a pro rape song (laughs) so he just wouldn't even respond i think that's the thing that like this podcast is really uh illuminating for me is like somebody like Kurt Cobain had the uh, intention to write a song like that and then could explain it to somebody. Mm-hmm. And it feels way like learning about this stuff about Blink. It feels like they just maybe they can have they can write stuff that like resonates with people, but it doesn't feel like there's intention there. And they definitely can't explain. Yeah, it's well. more stream of consciousness trying to hold on to that inner 13 year old boy that's inside you <laughs> right yeah yeah i mean that's uh, that's the fun my favorite blink album is the mark and tom show which is like the live album mm-hmm. um and because it's all of their uh concert banter between the two of them between the songs and all of the the shenanigans that are involved in it <laughs> that that that's the essence of that band and all the songs are the essence of what the banter is between the songs between Mark and Tom like the shit that, that they say to each other is what is basically how all the lyrics of all the songs are written I'm sure yeah yeah I it's gotta be um because that's like it seems like such you know a silly kind of band which I'm I'm fine with like I grew up listening to them that's the other thing though like i remember kids when i was like in elementary school wearing blink stuff and i wasn't allowed to listen to them then mm-hmm. i didn't discover them until i was in high school which is probably like a decade after they had it was like probably their greatest hits <laughs> cd was like my first <laughs> time listening to blink um which is weird but yeah yeah you were now now you got to be around all the gatekeepers who are like Psh. I was listening to Cheshire Cat. You know any of the Cheshire Cat songs? <laughs> Fucking poser. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it is. No, I don't um, think those I don't think there's a big gatekeeping culture for Blink. I would hope not, because I'm definitely I mean, I was kind of afraid that there was going to be at the Rage show 
just because they're you know they have way more they're way more dedicated to their music i think um mm, yeah yeah like yeah message wise well but, and, and uh, rage is one of those bands where most of the people who listen to them are like all in there's probably right. not very many just oh yeah i know like i'm a casual i'm just a casual rage <laughs> right, fan yeah, yeah. i don't I even really know any of the words like but i like that one riff right yeah <laughs> Um, well, so enough on, uh, new metal, pop punk and, uh, general alt rock. Let's move into heavy metal. Yeah. <laughs> As we discuss snails, <laughs> which are like the uh, reading up on them. They are like the most metal <laughs> animals, I think. And it, reading up, you know, they, they've been around the longest, so they get to wear all the crowns, I guess. <laughs> they've basically been on the land since plants started so I, I don't know of any other creature that's been around that long that was also that hasn't died off it's kind of snails might be one of the only ones that go all the way back and are still around kind of the same way isn't that insane that they're like snails are so they're wet they will just dry out and they were able to like live through all of that stuff is insane yeah the i i guess the big picture on snails for me before we get into the details the thing that i took away most from it is how an organism so small natural selection is very is just an amazing process because for something so small it works at its scale it doesn't have to operate at like a human scale or yeah. like a bigger scale where like, oh man, this all of this species is going to get wiped out because of this cataclysmic climate event. Their their area of expertise uh, for their livelihood is on their scale. So even like the variations in temperature and the variations in moisture in uh, an area as small as like a three foot by three foot square can be enough that drives natural selection and change and the evolutionary process inside of this group. And it's just one of those things where we're, we're always trying to think bigger picture, bigger picture, bigger picture, um, how everything is this big system that's influencing everything else. But it's also happening the other way too. Like it also happens on the smallest scales too. And that can be advantageous for creatures when a lot of other things are relying on the larger scale systems uh, the smaller things can survive. Yeah, yeah. Like, knowing that after uh, the asteroid impact that's killing off the dinosaurs, like, if there's just a swamp <laughs> somewhere that, like, there's going to be a swamp on Earth that's, like, not really that affected by the mm -hmm. thing. And that's what's so crazy that they can, you know, they snails are, like, all over the place. They're deep-sea creatures. They're um marshy areas their freshwater their land they're in on deserts like they live at elevation <laughs> super yeah, high elevation it's, <laughs> it's super wild uh reading up on them and i can't remember like you know i don't think i touched on them too much in college because they're in the mollusk phylum which is uh they share with like squid and octopus and all those other kind of squishy animals. Mm -hmm. um, there's like 37 uh, animal phylums, I believe. Um, 
but some of them like have just extinct uh, species and all that kind of stuff. But the for comparison, the human phylum is uh, Chordata, and that is like from humans all the way down to like sea squirts, like these mm-hmm. you know filter feeders that sit on the ocean floor, and just because at one point in their like development they have like a tail that goes past where their anus is <laughs> like they're considered in the same category as us like having yeah. a spinal not even a spinal cord but like a it's called a notochord which is develops into our nervous cord system like those are the major grouping things that put us in the chordates so stuff on that major of scale is what connects snails with squids and stuff so it's not to say that they're like super similar right i mean and you know, they they fall under that too because of the shell thing which then you have the slugs which you have to explain and yeah. I, I i reading up on a few of the different like snail specialists <laughs> which is kind of a weird scientist you know who's like you know what I'm going to dedicate the whole thing to snails. Did you see the guy from like Cambridge or, uh, oh, never mind. I can't remember his name. Go ahead. Steven, uh, what's his face? From Carnegie, Carnegie Museum of Natural History. Uh, the, the guy that I was reading on most was this, uh, what's his face? What's his name? Why can't I think of it right now? I just, well, I can't remember a name either. (laughs) Steve Jones, the easiest name in the world. <laughs> yeah, Steve Jones. No, he's he's a he's a British guy who's been doing this his entire life. But uh, his his point on studying snails is also like the uh, the beauty of science is that if you're doing it, you whatever you're doing, no, even if you're not like publishing the groundbreaking paper on neuroscience or astrophysics or black holes or whatever it is, um, you're all whoever is working on it is contributing to a body, the world body of knowledge. So like mm-hmm. even you, Eric, working in your little lab is, is doing something beneficial to the world body of knowledge as a scientist. Whereas, uh, in, in his, uh, pers- her, in his perspective, other professions, you, you have to become the all-star of that profession or basically your kind of life is wasted. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you didn't really provide anything to, to humanity or to society or whatever. Like wow. you, you, his example was a musician. He's like, yeah, you know, you can be a musician, but unless you become like one of those top, you know, 1% of the 1% musicians, you know, no one is going to consider anything that you did uh, like part of the world's culture. Like, That's insane. <laughs> but as a scientist, even if you do a little bit on something that no one is paying attention to, you are contributing to the not the whole breadth of knowledge. <clears throat> I mean, you know, sometimes I feel that way whenever uh, I'm doing whatever and I'm getting frustrated. I'm like, well, at least I'm not staring at a spreadsheet all day. Um, <laughs> but boy, yeah, to be a scientist and go that route <laughs> studying snails that's pretty impressive well and that and that's the other thing is like it is the it is the field where uh if you want to pick something that's very relatively normal uh, um and that most everyone would not find extraordinary 
you can still become the expert at that thing. <laughs> like you can become like incredibly knowledgeable because all it takes is time, like time yeah. and the willingness to do the observations and be very diligent about logging at everything. And it, you don't have to be the best mathematician in the world or have some crazy like outsized talent, like you can dunk a basketball or whatever. It's just, if you're willing to just be patient and sit there and stare at stuff for a long time, you could become like, a scientist <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh it's it's so funny because i <laughs> i we were talking with some friends like a few months ago and i was explaining like my uh career history i guess to somebody because it never makes sense like you know and sometimes i feel like i have to kind of especially around miho's friends because they're all engineers or like really smart mm-hmm. um you know they're I don't want them to be like, she's like just married to like an artist or whatever. Like that's, I guess opposites do attract. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So like explaining my scientific background and stuff, I explained that I worked in a medical research lab to somebody and he's like, Oh, that's awesome. That's what my daughter wants to do. (laughs) And I was just like, ah, (laughs) cool. Well, that now you can respond. That's great because her life won't be a waste. She'll have be she'll be providing to the world body of knowledge. There you go. I have a hard time hiding my emotions to people, (laughs) so it is being like, well, you know, uh, maybe she'll like it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, and and the other thing that he talked about that made me think about you was when he started in snails. It was you know like the late sixties, and people weren't really all up in arms about like the conservation of life when it came to like scientific research. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he was just, he was like, man, when I started, I was just like collecting these things and I just kill them off by the thousands. <laughs> 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 He's like, but now like ever since like uh, the, the 1980s, I got real self-conscious about it. And now I don't, none of, none of my specimens, are, I, I tried to not kill any of them ever. <laughs> Well, yeah. I, was, I was thinking about you with all the mice, like, yeah. <laughs> Somebody... Yep, yeah. My hell is going to be uh, gnawed by mice and rats <laughs> into eternity. <laughs> uh, one monkey, too. Um, I didn't kill the monkey. I just watched the monkey die. <laughs> it's totally different. <laughs> you are the witness. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was pretty. <laughs> I've told that story, right? I yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, so, and I shouldn't uh, incriminate myself, right? Right. I it mean, was not criminal. Wait till the criminal. statute of limitations is up. Yeah, that was a while ago. Um, just that was kind of wild. Just something so human like right there in front of you. <gasps> You're like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> isn't, isn't it, isn't it kind of weird why God would create us to look like them, though? It like, is. Maybe he's just trying to teach us a lesson in empathy. Ultimate test, really. Yeah. Um, but the the thing with like snails and being gastropods and everything that is so weird. Um, so like gastropods account for 80% of like mollusks. Um, so take that octopi, octopodes, um, which is the correct pluralization. Octopuses. Octopodes, because it's Greek. Um little fun fact anyways uh where was i oh so there the anatomy of the snail is what's interesting that it's like stayed the same pretty Mm -hmm. much you know things have changed for like slugs but 
knowing that they have like their they make their own shells with like calcium carbonate i think most of the time mm-hmm. it's probably a little different in deep sea uh animals yeah some of stuff. them have whatever the chitin or chitin yeah. or whatever instead <clears throat> and um having like it's such an interesting uh body plan because it's just so like we got to have all this stuff to have an animal <laughs> and how can we just protect it? I know we'll build a shell around all of the like important parts, <laughs> which yeah, is yeah. so weird that they have their heart, kidneys, lungs, if they breathe air, um, which is weird to think about that slugs have lungs. And weird that like you've got, deep sea ones that have gills but you also have a lot of deep sea ones that have lungs yeah and freshwater <laughs> ones that have lungs but not gills and, and some that have like both it's <laughs> it's so it's it's one of those things where like the it's such like a basic body plan that it it can just evolve that way it's like the you know i've described it before but how specialized you get as an animal is going to mean you're going to go extinct whenever things get rough. That's yeah. why like the wolf body plan has evolved multiple times, but the raccoon body plan is like, that's like the general body. The raccoons are going to outlive everything because right. they just can do it all. Um, when you come to like mollusks and stuff, the snails and slugs are like very basic. It's like protect this important stuff and then be able to move around and be able to eat um, and I don't know. It's funny that I, I find it so strange, but it makes sense how slugs evolved just that they like lost their shell and kind of internalized it. That mm, yeah. Most it's not, slugs it's not like, it. it's not like a snail without a shell. And yeah. it's, it's, it is, it is similar to like a genetic process and, uh, like the difference between like, uh, like a white, a dog and a black dog, you know, where just a part that causes that melanin pigmentation in the gene, like has a mutation that messes up that factory from producing it. So then the dog's hair is white instead of black, like all of its brothers and sisters. It's, it's as simple of a genetic mutation as that, that gets inherited and passed down that causes the shell to stop. It's not like, a some, weird uh, or some really outsized uh stressor of of an environment of the environment changing or anything like that that caused us to not have snails anymore and they all became slugs or the we had slugs and then they all died off because they ended up needing shells and so they all need only the shell ones survived yeah what's what's you know the like trade-offs is like okay so a snail has the shell it can go into um Man, this one guy described it so well. A snail has a shell it can go into, uh, so that means it has uh, protection from drying out or like being eaten or whatever. Um, but it has like a requirement for more calcium in its diet, whereas a slug has less need for calcium in its diet, um, but it doesn't have a shell it can go into to keep from being eaten or dried out. But it can fit in tiny tiny yeah. little places so that's like you know how those brief um genetic differences like the genetic modifications and mutations and stuff 
cause it to then be successful enough to just have its own progeny of slugs is okay well instead of uh like drying out or being stuck outside in like a wooded environment where you know birds can pick you off or whatever you can fit in between the bark of tree right and that will keep you from drying out and keep you from being eaten and um, that doesn't have to be happen like in some isolated place like the Galapagos Islands or Tasmania or something like that in order for this type of feature to happen. These they they evolved right next to each other in the same yeah. environments. It's not like, oh man, we got this one snail that was like isolated and after a few, you know, 100,000 years they lost their shells cuz they didn't need them over here on this island. Yeah, and it's what's funny is like then they're not necessarily like competing with each other because they're so small. And because this happens on such a small scale, this happens like thousands of times across the globe in different environments. Like slugs are not related to each other. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not one group that then lost their shells. And then that is where all the slugs came from just because they're two different slugs they could be completely genetically isolated from each other. And the same thing with snails, like certain uh, looking snails and certain phenotypes and stuff like that. They just come to those things on their own. Like like having lungs, there was not one snail that had lungs and now that's all the lunged snails. That just happens independently in multiple different locations. Yeah, and then I guess this gets us right into the reproduction part because... Um, part of the reason why you have this diversity, but also it's not geo-located isolation dependent, is because of the like mating practices and how they reproduce and how, be, depending on the environment, the the behaviors of reproduction change. Like the ones that are in the Americas that are closer to the equator and in the tropical region regions, they're like actually s- real sexually producing all the time and that might be more because uh you got to have a lot of sex in a hot environment to reproduce yourself many times to stave off parasitic infection that would kill you if you weren't reproducing at a fast rate because the parasites would catch up to whatever your genes were so as long as you're keeping this diversity of genes up really fast really high turnover rate the parasites can't ever line up and wipe you out um whereas like in colder regions for snails that live up in, you know, England or in Sweden and stuff like that in the mountains, they're more like not really fucking. <laughs> they, they, they they sometimes are way more like, you know what? I'll just have sex with myself. It's fine. I don't really need to <laughs> do I don't need to search for a mate. I got the parts. I'll just do it this way. And I'm I'm not going to do it very often because there's not really that many parasites up here in the cold that are going to try to you know, wipe out all my family members that have the same genes. So it's it's a different type of way of going about it. Yeah, they're, the like mating stuff was so strange to me because it's like, it seems so, I don't know. It's always weird whenever you like learn about courtship things with animals. Right. Because you're like, how... Like, where's the book written for you guys to all like, notice, you know? <laughs> Does your dad have to talk to you about this? Like, yeah, how to yeah. do it? Like, no, no, son. You can't just stick it anywhere. 
<laughs> Instead, you have to find a mate and then walk in a circle around each other for six hours. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, that was. I texted you about that, the love darts thing. Yeah. Um, that was wild. So there's these certain types of snails that are. Uh, there's there's a lot of different snails that do this, but most of them I think are like the kind that are hermaphroditic, and they're land snails, so they have lungs and everything. Um, I guess some slugs do it too, mm. but they they f- have what is called a dart sack, and in the dart sack they form darts like literal needles. Uh, that are sharp and calcareous or chitinous. Um, and they're used in their mating process, but they have no relation pretty much whatsoever. They're not like a sexual organ or anything. Yeah, it doesn't carry sperm. It's not the penal vestige or something like that to penetrate the vagina. It's it's nothing to do with that whatsoever. Yeah, <laughs> and again, these are hermaphroditic, so they have like both sexual organs. Um, what happens is they they circle each other for like six hours, and then they like come together, and they're like you know with their feet uh, feeling around for where everything is located, and I think they both send like sperm to the other one to then both receive the sperm because they can also then make the eggs fertilize their own eggs and stuff well um the way i was reading it was like there's a determination made in this process by which one's going to be the the sperm deliverer which one like the this part of the darts is the decision of who is the one that has the genes that needs to be passed or, or whatever? Like that is a, uh, who's the, who's the carrier best carrier and who's the best passer. So the thing with the darts that blew me away and why they're so metal <laughs> is they then shoot their dart. It's like a contact shot. Yeah. So they've, they've got the nine millimeter up to the other one's head. Yeah. You put literally. the, cro- you put the crossbow like right up against the person's temple <laughs> and they shoot the dart, which it can have so much force that it then can like JFK go through the other side of their head. <laughs> it can puncture internal organs, which I'm sure is just great for survivability, but yeah, they shoot them with a dart through their head. Um, only hit about a third of the time because uh, their eyes aren't so good. Um, <laughs> even though they're contacted. Yeah, I mean, there's the not there's snail. not much to the brain. We can talk about that next. They're, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so they, but in this dart, it has like the mucus that surrounds the dart seems to have like a uh, a pheromone in it that essentially closes off like the the like sperm part of the uh one that receives the dart the sperm digestion organ so where they would break it down and it uh opens the capulatory canal so it's where it would then store the received sperm to then fertilize the eggs and everything which is just like such again complicated process that i don't know how evolution gets to this point but it just does 
Well, it's and we talked about in the left-handed episode. This is where there's like left-handed snails and right-handed snails. <clears throat> yeah, and like it's based upon like where their sexual organs are located and how their shell is rotated, and so like left-handed snails cannot have sex with right-handed snails. So when I was reading about the love dart stuff, I was wondering if the does the dart have the signal that tells them, oh, this is not going to be possible. We're a left-right matchup. It's not going to work. Or do they just, does the dart still say, okay, get ready to receive some sperm, and then they just can't ever get it lined up right to deliver the sperm, so then they just give up and pass on, and it's only when another left-handed snail meets another left-handed snail that it finally works out. Yeah, I feel like they would probably have to figure that out before the dart process but i don't know because like they're they're feeling each other up right to like yeah see yeah where everything... for the big walk around and all that right so um yeah i would imagine but i don't know yeah that's the other thing that's strange about it is they don't have a dart to fire the first time that they mate <laughs> it is only the process of mating that then triggers the dart formation for future mating all right so that's uh, that's your is... that's how you know if you're a virgin snail or not yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> check their dart set. Well, so that's a that's a question too. If they're all herm hermaphrodites, do you have to have sex the first time for real before you're able to fertilize yourself? But well, I guess if you decide to fertilize yourself, the love darts don't matter at all. You just like ah, I'm bored, and you just stick one end into the other. Yeah, yeah, it would have to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's such a it's so strange that like. Uh, well, I guess, yeah, we can go into their, their brains, which I didn't see too much stuff on. I was too busy. I, I got down the love dart triangle. Uh, well, it's, black hole. it, it's kind of like worms. Um, and even more like, uh, when we first were talking about like initial cells and how the, they w basically didn't, they had what would be like a decision-making process as they're feeling around looking for f food and whatever and uh we talked in the chirality podcast i think we talked about it um but yeah what i was reading was uh, basically they just have a governor that decides if they're going to mate or if they're going towards food and that's kind mm, of it yeah yeah the uh, that and so that's like the neural activity that's happening the other thing that's happening is a temperature sensation and that is more a genetic disposition based upon like the shell type that they have and that's the next crazy part of this is the the differentiation in the same species of all the different types of shell colorings and markings and darkness versus lightness and everything like that you can find a bunch of snails all from the exact same habitat the same like 12 inch circle and they'll all have different color shells. And you might think, oh, this is like, you know, we've got cats that are calicos and tabbies. Or, and, you know, we've got, it's just, you get the genes mixed up and people's hair color and eye color gets different type of thing. But it's, it seems obvious, but it's actually a little bit more intriguing than that. They, this guy, Steve Jones, did a specific study because he was curious about one behaviors and the idea that the genetics 
decide for you what your behavior is going to be in the environment. So like the genetics decide the colors and markings on the shell. If you have a dark shell, you're going to absorb more heat than if you have a light shell. And but you're the same species and you live in the same spot. So his question was, does that mean that the light ones end up spending a lot more time in the sun and the dark ones end up spending a lot more time in the shade because they don't need to have the solar energy as much because they store more heat? (laughs) And the way that he figured it out was um, by using the dye in blue jeans because he noticed that his blue jeans were fading over time as he was doing all this snail research from being out in the sun. So he mixed the dye from blue jeans, the indigo dye, because he knew that would fade in sunlight. And he knew the he they figured out the exact duration of its fading if it was just placed in direct sunlight. They mixed that with some yellow paint to turn it green. So indigo and yellow make green. Then they put dots on all the snails, on all the shells. And then they would monitor them and, you know, measure as the rate of the green dot would change back to yellow. And sure enough, it correlated exactly perfectly. If you had the genes that would give you the black shell, you didn't spend very much time in the sunlight, and it took a lot longer for your indigo dye to fade back into yellow than it did for the ones with the light shells. And now that seems very obvious from like an evolutionary standpoint, but it is, it's, it's more deep than that because it is telling you that the genes are one major factor in evolution behavior is decided by the genes that those things got they didn't have a brain part that's just like man i like it warm i'm always going to go to the warm part they that's not a conscious decision that any of those any of those creatures is making and so when you're talking about bigger picture nature nurture type of stuff nurture does matter a lot but it's the important thing to always remember that even the behavior, even the behavior of all of the nurture part in the environment is decided in a lot of cases by whatever the baggage is that is a part of the genetic makeup. Yeah, <clears throat> that's one of the things to take away from like being interested in snails is they're kind of a great thing to study to like take this genetic stuff and really expand it out into the bigger meaning. So having the research that can then tell you like behavior is determined <laughs> completely by <laughs> genetics. Uh, that's huge. Um, like you mentioned, you know, they only have the two types of like decisions, like where food is and, uh, or if they're hungry and where food is, is like this one, I think a uh, species of snail and they also only have two types of neurons for that. Like they only decide, they only have one neuron that's telling them I'm hungry or not. And then one type of neuron that's telling them if food is close or not. Mm. And they have like 20,000 of those, uh, neurons and stuff, which can be kind of large. Um, and that means though, that scientists are able to like remove those cells, those nerve cells and do research on it to determine like, what actually determines behavior based on the neurology? Like what is the uh, electrophysiology of what is going on? Like to cause this behavioral um, 
this behavior to occur mm-hmm. like you know what what are the excitatory things and all that kind of stuff so by studying um those snails they're able to like take the much bigger picture model for understanding like humans and all of that kind of stuff so really got to hand it to snails like evolution did so much of the work <laughs> right for scientists well and that's the thing too because it dispels a lot of the reverse i the reverse idea because that also is an intuitive way of thinking about it oh these snails stayed in the sun all the time and so that they might have originally had dark shells but because they all they loved the sun so much that started making all of them all their shells lighter. And so when their kids were born, they had lighter shells. And when their kids were born, they had lighter shells. It was the behavior that decided the genes that would be passed on, which is not the way that it worked (laughs) because you're born with the color shell before you, anyone's made a decision. If you like the cold or dark, or if your parents were like the cold or dark or any of that type of stuff. Um, so the, that, that's that's really why that type of information is important when you're doing even just basic evolutionary studies on stuff that might not be interesting. It does break that other intuitive pattern that a lot of us that it makes sense. It would make sense if you thought about it in the reverse way, if you did not do the research. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. Um, another one of the things that like snails have provided that's goes directly into like modern research is uh cone snails those super uh poisonous no toxic um super toxic snails that live in the sea and uh they're the kind that you've you may have seen videos of if you watch like those uh nature shows about the ocean and everything um that they they like bury themselves in the sand and then kind of have like a little snorkel thing that that's where they like suck in water to breathe. Mm -hmm. Um, They stick that up, but it also has like essentially nose sensors on it so they can tell whenever prey is around. And as a snail, they're able to slowly move close to the prey, which can be like a fish or another snail or something. And then they put out this proboscis, which is uh, has like taste buds on it, so they can figure out what the you know location of the animal is, so they can like get really close with this proboscis thing. Then they shoot a harpoon out of it that has venom on it, um, which paralyzes the fish or whatever within a few seconds. Some of these can kill humans. There's like there's 500 species of cone snails and eight of them have killed humans before. Wow. Um, and so, you know, if you're like picking up uh, shells while snorkeling, that's a bad idea. Um, (laughs) But I love them. They're so pretty. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so the strange thing though, about these cone snails is they started doing research on the venom that they create and realized not only is the venom different uh, between each species it's also different between each um like location that the species would be found in it's also different depending on each individual it's also different depending on each harpoon strike mm-hmm. so the snail in its um 
you know, this is one of those things that's like the brain is not causing this to occur. This is just a natural process. So this goes to show how much sophistication can come out of like, it's like the emergent intelligence kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're able to sniff with their like proboscis and figure out what type of prey it is to concoct from like a thousand different venom components a unique cocktail of venom that will kill that thing that'll work just perfect for that that's cool and they can shoot multiple harpoons so if they shoot it and if they can tell it's not being paralyzed they'll shoot another harpoon with a different cocktail mixture (laughs) that will then paralyze it wow um it then like you know opens up it's like mouth cavity kind of thing and swallows the whole thing and then its tongue like a lot of snails most snails and slugs have a tongue that has tiny little micro teeth on it that just grind away Mm -hmm. until they can suck out nutrients of whatever um but what's interesting about this venom is because we now know like this is this is the way that it works whenever you're like they discovered this new venomous thing how does that translate to medicine it translates that natural selection and evolution has reached a point where there is now there are now 1000 different bioactive chemicals like we know they're bioactive because they use them to kill whatever that means you don't have to sit down at a whiteboard and be like drawing out the atoms of a molecule to be like well will this one function and touch this protein to cause this thing to go on you now already have like a thousand chemicals you know will interact yeah the snail is the laboratory right exactly (laughs) you don't need to do it all (laughs) this is like this is like what people want to use ai for and like you know pharmacology and all that kind of stuff Mm. but evolution's already done this for like these thousand chemicals and now they've been able to like um figure out which ones they want to do research on to have like non-opioid pain relief or treat Parkinson's disease or cancer because these are like neuro excitatory proteins. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Like you could maybe do stuff for um, like different types of seizure disorders or like Parkinson's, anything that has like, you basically have a short circuit, short circuit, uh, neurologically that you somehow either need to paralyze that circuit. So it's not, causing you to have a seizure or you need to uh, bypass that somehow rewire it you, there you got to figure out a way to do it and i guess like toxins would make a lot of sense yeah it's just it's wondering like would me. the delivery system still just be <clears throat> intravenously like you develop it and you just put it in a shot or an iv bag or would i don't know yeah i mean it it, it depends on obviously then you would do testing and stuff to see okay, is this going to affect like the uh, liver or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, but this way they know like, okay, we can, these are a jumping off point. We can combine it with whatever. And then we know that this protein exists in the brain. So it can then, once it gets there, activate it, like break off the protein part that's blocking it from attacking the liver or whatever. Um, yeah, or if and if they know like, oh yeah, this one does the paralytic effects, but it doesn't stop the heart, it doesn't stop the lungs, it doesn't stop all these other involuntary yeah. muscles from working, um, then that's a good way to start to try to figure out if it could do other things. Yeah, so I just I love that 
like snails showed such a great example of how you can like like the i guess the researchers saying you know by studying something like that in science you can actually contribute to you know like you would never think looking at a snail on the side of the uh you know sidewalk or grass or whatever that that could eventually lead to um curing cancer or something but it has the potential <laughs> like and that's the kind of cool thing about studying such strange little things i mean that's the the inspiration in the ordinary things as mr rogers taught us so many years ago that's the only yeah. thing that you need to maintain a happy life is a sense of wonder and inspiration in ordinary things <laughs> <laughs> there you go he yeah, he's a smart dude that mr rogers <laughs> yeah yeah it's i it pains me to watch that kind of stuff because like i um i grew up watching him at, you know obviously reruns uh i'm sure um i don't know maybe no, you were probably around it. for the last for the last part of it like he went to into the 90s yeah into uh, the mid late 90s going <clears throat> not that i remember watching it i just know i did watch it uh but i just had like crying beaten out of me so much as a kid that i can't it like physically pains me to like well up oh, seeing yeah, that yeah, kind of yeah. stuff and so yeah it's it's tough for me to watch because yeah, it, it physically hurts the um the not the uh tom hanks movie but there's a yeah. mr rogers documentary that came out i don't know it's got to be over a decade now but it came out before the tom hanks movie and that one is that gets me every single time because it's really just like following him and then like behind the scenes stuff of, you know, him like going to Congress and like fighting for public education and public <laughs> broadcasting and being like doing a puppet show for Congress to like be like, look, yeah. this matters. Like your kids are dialed into this and you just want to show them Looney Tunes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Congress stuff is tough because like you can tell the you know, I'm sure it was a very famous one that people have seen if they are familiar with this stuff, but like the guy comes off very aggressive at first. He's like, you want this much funding for the thing? And then he's like, he's like, well, sing me a song that you would sing on the whatever. And then he like does. And he's like, oh, that's, that's pretty good. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that, that gets me. It hurts. Uh, but yeah. And even just like the, the Mr. Rogers episodes on death, and like all those stuff, I, I remember those from when I was a little kid and like, that's still like just having this very ne never being condescending to children by talking them like they're little stupid babies who couldn't possibly understand what, what concepts are. You, yeah. you can present things to them in a way that is understandable, but also treats them like with respect and that they're human beings. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's where I'm not great with kids. Like I can get to know kids and then like know how to deal with them, <laughs> but I cannot like walk up to a stranger kid, like, you know, in a, an appropriate setting, obviously mm -hmm. I would not just walk up at the park. Um, but I can't like have a conversation with a kid. I don't know very well. <laughs> I just talk to them like they're a normal adult and they don't you know, they hit me in the face then. <laughs> it's like, I'm not a big fan of that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, but I feel like maybe I get some of, I get it wrong. Probably I can explain stuff to kids if they're asking questions, but just talking to them is, is tough, you know? 
Well, and that's, do you have this? Do people have this? I I think uh, for me, maybe because I don't have kids, or maybe because also being the oldest and having like a younger brother and sister and it it all I always hated it like ever since I was very young hated the way that like aunts and uncles would talk to us or teachers yeah. would talk to us in Sunday school and just that real like belittling kind of almost talking to you like you're a baby uh I I'd I never I never liked it and I think the thing that's helpful for me is just that kids do just ask a ton of questions and usually they'll ask a lot of questions to new people because they're new adults and a lot of other adults have probably already gotten way tired of the questions. And so they've totally shut them down to the point where you, they don't do the just why, why, why type of questions all the time to them. Yeah. I don't mind that. I'll sit there and just, I'll just go down as long, go down the rabbit hole of the why question until I get to the point where I can't explain it anymore. But I don't have much of a problem keep backing it out like all the way to the origin of the universe if we have to. <laughs> so it's not it's not a problem for me. And it's I've had very long conversations with, you know, my nephews and my friends' kids when it comes to that type of stuff. Yeah, maybe I'm just not meeting the right kids. <laughs> yeah. yeah, why do you know all these shitty kids? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I whenever I like volunteered at a children's hospital in Dallas, that was like that was I I like spoke to kids pretty well then because um, they're there for something like medical. And I I was like a had just finished my first year of college, but like, you know, I was interested in the stuff. So I was able to like have a conversation because I, I pushed around. They have like this volunteer program over the summer. If you have kids and you live in Dallas or if you live somewhere else, I highly suggest looking into like the volunteer programs for kids over the summer. Cause I think since they have so many, since so many kids like in college or high school want to, you know, say they want to become a doctor and everything, mm -hmm. they usually streamline those programs where it's only like six weeks long or something so that they can do it two times during the summer and all that kind of stuff. Um, so Influencer it's a short classes. commitment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> exactly. And, uh, but they, one of the gigs was taking like a cart with like board games and like coloring books and all that kind of stuff around to the waiting rooms. And, uh, that was pretty great. There was like a little girl there that only had one hand and she was like drawing and she was right-handed, but she didn't have her right hand. Um, so she was drawing and she was like, oh, I have to draw with my, well, it, she had it, but it was like severely burned and like not going to function um and she was like you know i have to draw with my left hand because this and then i was able to be like well i draw with my left hand and then she was just like had a big smile yeah, on her yeah, face yeah. <laughs> so uh you know you can have those kinds of moments i can talk to kids i'm trying to not sound weird no it, it, i think i think that's the thing is uh is is being mostly a, a kids appreciate vulnerability and honesty yeah. <laughs> like they can they can tell if you're faking it, you know, even if they can't verbalize it, even if they're too young to speak, like they can tell if you're faking it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how we got here. <laughs> <laughs> Snails, man. It's it's a it's a thing a kid would be interested in. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> All um, right, man. Great job.
Well, good job to you too. And we'll just talk off air about our topic next week. All right. Until next week. Bye.